0: the Ask NT Anything podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast that brings you the thought and theology of New Testament scholar and former Bishop of Durham Tom Wright. I'm Justin Briley, heading up Premier Unbelievable, and the show is brought to you in partnership with Tom's UK publisher SBCK and Wright Online, who run his video teaching courses. And we're due to be recording some fresh Q and A's from you with Tom very soon, so now's a good time to be sending in those questions. You can get your question asked by registering for our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com, our website, and you'll get the link to ask a question with your first welcome email. Registering also keeps you up to date with all the great stuff coming from our fledgling apologetics and theology ministry. We've got a whole variety of shows and podcasts and resources now available. Well, today on the show, we're going back to the very beginning. Well, the beginning of this podcast, at least, which began nearly four years ago. There are some real gems in the back catalogue. And today you'll hear the very first set of questions that Tom responded to from November 2018, answering listener questions on how to teach children about new creation, where our loved ones go after they die and responding to a critique from well-known philosopher William Lane Craig plus there's a little bonus something to listen out for at the very end of today's podcast don't leave early or you'll miss it hope you enjoy today's gem from the vaults We've got pastries, we've got coffee, we've got uh, breakfast, and I'm really looking forward to just talking theology and asking questions. Um, You've been writing more books than I've had hot dinners, I think. (laughs) Um, One of your most recent was on um, the subject of uh, the cross, the atonement, but of course perhaps your most well-known book is Surprised by Hope. Yes, I I get more um, letters, emails,
1: messages, people stopping me after meetings to say that book has really helped me Mm. on that book than anything else I've written. And I didn't know that was going to happen when I wrote it, but it's been (laughs) exciting to see the reaction.
0: Um, We're going to be talking about that today because uh, we're aiming to theme each of these podcasts as we go along on a particular subject. Uh, We've had so many questions in, Mm -hmm. and so inevitably I've had to choose uh, just a handful of them. But um, we do read all of the questions, and if you do keep sending them in, there's always a chance it'll be (laughs) asked and answered on the show. So we're going to um, start, though, uh, on today's one, looking at heaven, the kingdom come, eschatology. Those are the kinds of issues that obviously you wrote (laughs) about (laughs) with Surprised by Hope. Um, And uh, there will be, for those who manage to stay through to the end of these podcasts... (laughs) A little surprise <laughs> musical treat as well. Oh. N.T. Wright Unplugged. Um, so so do uh, do stick around for that if you can. Um, why don't we dive in and, uh, and get going with some questions? Sure. That's what we're here for. Um, okay. I may be mispronouncing this person's name, but I think it's Josiane in Milo. Um, and Josiane asks, how do we explain to... Ordinary people about the resurrection, if they've been taught all their lives that to be saved is going to heaven—that's your soul floats off when you die—and that um, the the soul is a kind of spiritual substance more important than the body needs to be saved—and and all the beliefs that come with that about the material world, etc. Mm, mm. This is sort of getting to the heart of what you were talking about, right? Right. Isn't it? It, it,
1: all these questions about how you'd explain to somebody like this, somebody like that, I would want, want to preface them by saying it depends entirely on who they are in the context because I've done a lot of work with a lot of people and conversations go very differently depending on whether it's a young person in a coffee shop, whether it's a worried old person at the back of the church, whatever. So having said that, I think the obvious place to start is with the resurrection of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And very often Christians have really glossed over the resurrection Ironically, as though it's the sort of happy ending after Good Friday and many Easter services in churches Uh, talk about Jesus being raised from the dead therefore we're going to heaven when we die but that's not what the four gospels actually say so I'd like to start on the the firm ground of saying let's actually look at John 20 and 21 at Matthew 28 at Luke 24 at Mark 16 though that's a very short and probably truncated chapter and say what are these stories actually about and they simply aren't about oh, he's died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. They are about new creation. I think you see this most clearly in John. And when you look at John 20 and 21 and see how it works in relation to the whole book, the whole gospel of John, right back to the beginning, in the beginning was the word, you see that the great biblical story which John is collecting together in his story of Jesus is about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention to rescue and renew it, as opposed to Oh, creation's a rather shabby old thing, and God's going to chuck it away and take us somewhere else, somewhere which isn't spatio-temporal and physical. Mm, mm. And uh, I totally agree that much Western Christianity has got this simply wrong, and uh, I hate saying that because I like to get on with people. I don't (laughs) like to tell them they're wrong. I'd rather find points of agreement. But… Uh, The thing I say to the students the whole time is if you go back to the first century looking for somebody who taught that we have souls which are um, in exile from our true home, which is heaven, and that we're looking forward to going back there one day, then there is somebody who says that very clearly. His name is Plutarch, (laughs) and he's a pagan priest at the shrine at Delphi. He's a philosopher. He's a biographer. He's one of the great intellectuals of the first century. But he's a Platonist. He is in technical terms what we call middle Platonism between early Platonism and the Platonism. Platonism that uh, was going on in the 4th and 5th centuries and so on. And it's quite a straightforward belief, and it's what many modern Western Christians imagine is the gospel. So I'd like to start with the resurrection of Jesus, which is the solid ground that as Christians we ought to be prepared to stand on and work out from there.
0: And yet, it, it, in my view, probably the vast majority of Christians today do have a sort of dichotomy of the body and the soul being Transported to some other yeah 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 version of reality,
1: yes in they do, and, and and of course, this comes particularly poignantly at a funeral when somebody says, Where are they now? Mm. You know, I was at a funeral a couple of months ago of a of a dear person a thirty five year old godson of mine who died of cancer, leaving a, a widow and two little children and It was a wonderful Christian funeral, but I was sad because there
0: was almost nothing about resurrection, mm. which was to me bizarre. Um, What do you say then? Because this chimes in very neatly with a question that came in from someone who simply calls themselves Mike, who says what you talk about in terms of heaven coming to earth rather than us going to heaven mm -hmm. feels so right. But my father died a couple of months ago. Where is he now? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say the first question to say is, is this
1: father somebody who is a believing and baptized member of the body of Christ? Because then the answer is comparatively easy. If not, then the answer might be harder, because Mm. we always say that a person's faith is ultimately known to God alone. And because of all sorts of circumstances, there are many people who actually do have a basic faith, Mm. but it isn't overtly expressed, etc. So having said that, I'll take Mike to... The funeral that I presided Mm -hmm. over, which was for my mother, which was four or five months ago, she was a day short of 95 and was ready to go. Bless her. And we prayed with her. And it was kind of a relief to her finally at last to be out of Mm -hmm. her tiredness and so on. And so we celebrated the fact that one day God will make his new world and raise all his people from the dead, including mum, and that we are happy to leave her at the moment safe with Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 1, my desire is to depart and be with the Messiah, which is far better. Now, being with the Messiah doesn't tell you kind of where it just it 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 focuses on who actually that Mm. jesus is looking after his people and here's the strange thing and i don't think there's been enough theological work done on this in revelation 6 it talks about the souls under the altar who are saying how long oh lord how long Uh, they're waiting for resurrection in john 14 jesus says um I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'll come again and take you to myself. But the word for uh, mansion or room or dwelling or whatever is a word that you would use in Greek, not for a place you'd go and live forever, but for somewhere you would stay and rest mm. before continuing your journey. The Greek word is monne, And if you look it up in the dictionary, that's what it means, a wayside inn or something like that. Um, it's a blissful place. In Luke twenty-three, Jesus says to the brigand crucified next to him, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Mm. Now, paradise again is it's rather like C.S. Lewis's "The Wood Between the Worlds." It's the blissful, lovely place where you're waiting before proceeding to the final destination. But
0: do you, do you think that that final destination essentially is, is a sort of reunion with the physical? In some absolutely, sense? yes,
1: very emphatically. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, God's desire is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in the Messiah. And the whole point is new creation. But actually, this goes back to a reading of Genesis. Genesis is the creation of a heaven plus earth reality. Mm. Now, in the ancient world, a heaven plus earth reality is a temple. That's what temples are. Many Old Testament scholars have said, Genesis one is describing the creation of a temple, and guess what, it's got an image in it as a temple should, Mm. so that you know who the God is, and so that the influence of the God may be felt in the world. When you read Genesis one like that, all sorts of things go click, click, click. But then when you read John 20, Revelation 21, etc., you realize, This is where that whole story was going,
0: heaven and earth together, not separated. So sort of in conclusion to Mike's question in terms of where is his father now, um, if a believer in Christ we know he is with Christ, so we can't say exactly what that state of existence is. It's very
1: difficult to say too precisely. It's almost as though there's a kind of divine conspiracy of silence at that point because historically many… Different cultures have obsessed about trying mm. to get in touch with the dead yeah. or whatever. And we are simply told again and again in Scripture, no, they're okay. Don't worry about them. Don't try and contact them. Trust
0: God. But in terms of the popular image some people yep. have of, yep. oh, well, Auntie Maud is looking down at me yes, now from yes, heaven. Yes, yes, yes not not a helpful image as um, far as you're concerned. Different
1: Christian traditions have wondered about whether the saints for instance whether Auntie Maud is a saint or not we'll leave that <laughs> open for the moment uh, whether the saints do have a role in sharing in the intercession of Christ mm. for his people on earth. Mm. We're told that Jesus is himself interceding for us Paul says in mm. Romans 8 and some people have seen uh, those who are in Christ sharing that intercession. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, we pray for the saints and they pray for us. Um, the fact that there's no consensus in, among Christians on that, I think, is quite important. But here's the thing. If we believe that the Holy Spirit has indwelt us in the present time, and if we don't believe that, then you know we're lacking something basic mm. about being Christian, then when we die... I think it's appropriate to say that the Holy Spirit has in some way been, how to, how to say this, affected, shaped by who we have become, just as we are shaped by the Spirit. So every bit of genuine Christian discipleship in us, uniquely in us, has also shaped who the Spirit mm. now is, mm. so that the Spirit, as it were, is remembering us, holding our members together against the day when the spirit will then raise us from the dead. That's
0: something to be explored. Here's a question from Catherine Bentley. Uh, asks, after reading Surprised by Hope and noticing how children are taught, well, sort of, since most of the adults don't know it themselves, about heaven, death, resurrection, and so on at church, I wonder if you can give tips how to address the problem of children referring to heaven as a place in the sky or as a synonym for paradise or a place where God looks after the dead, as a five-year-old told me yesterday at Sunday school. Any tips on how to get the message across to children would be greatly appreciated. If we don't get our teaching right with them, we mustn't be surprised when we get grown-up Christians who muddle everything up.
1: Uh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. It seems to me we have tended to concentrate on the spatial thing of going up to heaven or whatever, or him, him's talking about way beyond the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, Jesus going to his home above the sky and stuff like that—that's really not helpful. Heaven in the Bible is sometimes spoken of like that because the Hebrew Mm. shemayim does duty for the sky and and God's space. But actually, when you then look at what the Bible says about God's space, it isn't up above the sky. Solomon Mm. says, "Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house?" Nevertheless heaven and earth somehow do meet in the temple. And then in the Gospels, Jesus himself becomes the temple. And in the epistles, the Holy Spirit constitutes the church as the temple. And each time, that means we are at Mm. the, the dangerous overlap of heaven and earth. So getting away from that spatial upstairs, downstairs thing is helpful, but also the time question. Because People don't realize when they're looking ahead that we are promised that world history as we know it will have an extraordinary denouement in which, as Paul says in Romans 8... Um, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to decay in order to inherit mm. the freedom which comes when God's children are glorified. So it's not just up then, it's way out in front of us. And here's the thing, one of my students a few years ago said that trying to explain this to his little daughter, this is the, the question we've been mm. asked, um, he, he was reading Revelation 21 and and said to her, sooner or later, that God will make a time when there, be, when there will be no more tears. And he said that really resonated. A five-year-old child knows about things that cause you to cry. And he said that thereafter, his daughter would say, Daddy, when we get to the no-tears place, (laughs) that's really good, that there will be a no-tears place because God himself will wipe away all tears from all eyes. And so the fact that that is going to come and that in the resurrection of Jesus, it has already begun. We are on this time track mm. between the launching of new creation and the completion of new creation and then within that story we can talk about heaven and earth coming
0: together it feels like it's a long term project though both for adults and children it is. to rethink it is. the way we is. talk it is. It about is. heaven and
1: i mean so th- there's there's two major things going on here on the one hand from the eighteenth and nineteenth century, particularly Western Christianity has become more and more Platonic, and mm. more, you know this, this. You can observe this historically, and so we have to go back to Scripture again and again. And instead of reading the bits of the Bible that seem to support this Platonic vision, we have to talk about creation. It's the first article of the creed: mm. God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. He didn't make junk, and He's going to rescue and renew it. That's basic. But then at the same time, while we're doing that, we have quite different stories from our secular culture that either say it's all rubbish or give us wild and wacky ideas. And so as a Christian, as a biblical theologian, we're fighting on two fronts against Christian misunderstanding and against the wide misunderstandings that are out there in the world.
0: Let's turn to Anders in uh, Stockholm sweden who emails in to say um jesus second coming is something we're all waiting for but according to william lane craig nt wright's view is quite different and i would like some clarification now to set the scene william lane craig is a well-known christian philosopher mm-hmm. from the usa i know that he's been working on his own uh, research in atonement and so on and obviously looking into your views anyway um this is the the piece that's quoted by Anders from William Lane Craig, um, saying N.T. Wright has this very peculiar view that the son of man returned in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Anders is looking for clarification on that quote. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sadly, I mean, I've known Bill Craig for quite some time and we've argued in public and sometimes we've agreed in public (laughs) as well as disagreed and that's fine. Um, And yes, he is working on atonement, and yes, he disagrees with my view on that, and that's fine too. This is how we learn from one another, hopefully. But he's wrong in terms of saying that I say that in, this is Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and and, and, uh, Luke 19, and uh, sorry, Luke 21 and so on, that the Son of Man is returning at AD 70. The problem comes with the idea of the coming of the Son of Man. When you read Daniel 7, which is one of the most important biblical texts for the early Christians and for Jesus himself, you have to realize what's going on. And sadly, um, I may not have made this clear in Jesus and the Victory of God, but I had a whole long chapter on this. I thought I had made it clear Mm. that the way that Daniel 7 is being read in the first century is not about somebody called the Son of Man coming downwards from heaven to earth, but about this figure one like a son of man, coming on the clouds to be seated beside the Ancient of Days, who is God. So here's the scenario. And actually, there's a kind of a kid's version of it in the previous chapter, because in Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel himself in the lion's den. So what is this about? Daniel is a human being. He's put down into this den, surrounded by man-eating monsters. And in the morning, the king comes and looks down into the lion's den. Lo and behold, Daniel is still alive and well and the lions are still hungry. Um, And the king brings up Daniel out of the den and makes him the second ruler in the kingdom. Mm. That is exactly the same picture that you then have in Daniel 7, where you have this image of the great sea monsters, the monsters coming up out of the deep, which as anyone who knows the Jewish literature of the time knows, these are not uh, literal prophecies about sort of day of the triffids monsters mm. coming up out of the Mediterranean. You know, these are great world empires. They are they are nations and kingdoms and can be variously interpreted. Babylon, Syria, Greece, Rome, whatever. But then, when the fourth and last one has done its worst, then one like a son of man is brought up to sit beside the ancient of days, and there's no question as to what that means. In the text itself, because it's interpreted twice, there's a short interpretation, then it's an expanded interpretation. And it's about, quote, the people of the saints of the Most High, i.e. the faithful Israelites, will receive the kingdom and will reign forever and ever. In other words, God will vindicate his people and they will be the judges of the world Mm. and the monsters will get their comeuppance. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that don't you know that we will judge angels and we want to say, uh, no, actually, Paul, we didn't know that, thank you very much. (laughs) Tell us more. I think this is the sort of passage he's referring to, that actually this is in Jewish, Second Temple Jewish thought, this is how the scenario is going to play out. So now, cut to Mark 13, when Jesus and his disciples, uh, uh, they're by the temple, and the disciples are saying, wow, this is an amazing building. And Jesus says, actually, guess what? It's all going to come tumbling down. Mm. And they say, uh, when, how, what's that about? What, what, what's this all going to be? Because the great scenario at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a kind of confrontation between Jesus and the temple, and particularly a confrontation between Jesus and the high priest who represents the current temple regime. Because in the Gospels, Jesus himself is presented as the true temple. So the place isn't big enough for them both, to put it crudely. Hmm. And so this is all about the temple is going to be destroyed, which will constitute Jesus' visible vindication. Jesus will be raised from the dead. Jesus will then be exalted, and the sign that he is exalted is that the temple which has opposed him will be destroyed. In order to get that, you need to see how it's then applied in the next chapter when Jesus stands before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas says, what's this nonsense about destroying and rebuilding the temple? Jesus doesn't answer because there's no way he can explain mm. that to Caiaphas. But then Caiaphas goes for the jugular: Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus, it, it, there's, there's no easy English translation for you've said it or, or is it yes or is it the words are yours or whatever. But then comes the crucial thing. You will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That does not mean that Caiaphas will look out of the window and see Jesus coming downwards on a cloud. That is a crass, modern, literalistic misinterpretation. In Matthew and in Luke, many people think they are just making Mark a bit more clear here. It says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel... We're referring back to Daniel 7, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Mm. In other words, Matthew and Luke interpreting Mark, and I think it's so So in Mark, but with Mark it's very dense and, and, mm-hmm. and, and can be misinterpreted, are quite clear that the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7 refers to Jesus' vindication that the destruction of the temple is, a generation later, is the ultimate sign that God has vindicated and is vindicating Jesus. And that People have said, oh, this means N.T. Wright doesn't believe in the second coming. No, watch my (laughs) lips. Of course the second coming is real. Mm. That's there all over the New Mm. Testament. But these texts are not about the second coming. They are about the vindication of Jesus. Now, I'm sorry, that's a long answer, but it's really important. But
0: just um, just to recapitulate on that. The, the AD seventy, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and so on. What what is the, the significance of that in terms of you know what what Jesus said and what
1: the significance of it is that uh, God in Jesus is starting a true temple movement. Mm-hmm. When you look back from the gospel stories of Jesus you see that actually the temple in Jerusalem was always intended as an advance signpost Mm. of a coming reality. But if you mistake the signpost for the reality, it becomes an idol. You see this in the speech of Stephen in Acts very clearly, and actually all the way through Acts, all the clashes are about temples, whether it's in Athens or Ephesus or Jerusalem. Uh, And and the question is, where are heaven and earth coming together now? Mm. And the church is constituted on the belief which is dangerous and scary, that this is where heaven
0: and earth are coming together. Great first episode. Thank you Thank very you. much. Are we done? But yes, goodness. Goodness. believe it or not. Oh, um, our time big. is up already, I know. But don't worry. We'll be back <laughs> very soon um, with episode two of this brand new podcast, the Ask NT Write Anything podcast send your questions in if you'd like to ask a question do register at our website you can also sign up for news and episodes and all the rest of it ask ntwrite.com do please rate and review uh, this podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast from we'd be delighted to make sure other people know about this brand new podcast uh, for the moment i look forward to joining you again very soon tom thank you Thank you for being with us on today's show. Don't go anywhere because we've got something fun coming up for you in just a moment's time. Next week, we'll be pulling out another treasure from the archive of past shows before we return to some fresh questions with Tom. Uh, By the way, you can get your question in by registering for our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com doing that also gets you updates and a free ebook on the case for god again that's premierunbelievable.com. do check out all our other podcasts and videos while you're there too for now thanks for being with us this week and here's that special something i promised oh the time will come up
1: when the wind will stop and the breeze will cease to be a breeze in like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins the hour that the ship comes in and the seas will split and the ship will hit and the sand on the shoreline will be shaking and the tide will sound and the waves will pound and the morning will be a break in Oh the fishes will laugh as they swim out of the path And the seagulls they'll be smiling And the rocks on the sand they'll proudly stand The hour that the ship comes in And the words that are used for to get the ship confused Will not be understood as they're spoken For the chains of the sea will have busted in the night And be buried on the bottom of the ocean Oh, a song will lift as the mainsail shifts And the boat drifts on to the shoreline And the sun will respect every face on the deck The hour that the ship comes in And the sands will roll out a carpet of gold For your weary toes to be a touch in And the ship's wise men will remind you once again That the whole wide world is watching Oh the foes will rise with the sleep still in their eyes And they'll jerk from their beds, think they're dreaming But they'll pinch themselves and squeal And they'll know that it's for real The hour that the ship comes in And they'll raise their hands Saying we'll meet all your demands But we'll shout from the bow Your days are numbered And like Pharaoh's tribes They'll be drowned in the tide Like Goliath they'll be caught